we focus on generosity and helping families manage their wealth for impact. But I realized in my previous role, after working with thousands of families, many of them entrepreneurial, and I realized the ones that had the most generous culture were the ones who were the most successful and fulfilled and successful mm -hmm. by their own definition, not whatever the world tells them. Like they had well-defined what they were trying to do. And they were intentional about building their business like this, but it was just natural to them to be giving and to be supportive and collaborative with their employees. We would talk about, okay, how do I get our sales staff to be more productive? And most sales-oriented organizations would say, oh, you need more incentives. But I realized those are the worst uncollaborative environments. They didn't attract the best talent. They certainly didn't attract the most loyal customers. And I'm working with now, they are, they'll be willing to do just the littlest things to help their employees and other in business partners be successful. So they just have this natural desire to help other people be successful. Welcome to Unleash Thyself, a haven where transformational stories ignite the path to self-discovery. I'm your host, Constantin Morun, and today's episode brings an incredible tale of resilience, purpose, and the extraordinary power of radical generosity. Joining us is Bob De Pascal, a man whose life is a testament to turning adversity into a catalyst for profound change. At the young age of 18, Bob's world was shaken by a cancer diagnosis and the haunting events of 9-11. These experiences, though harrowing, set him on a path of deep introspection and led him to discover the immense joy and impact of giving. Bob is not just a survivor. He's a beacon of hope, a voice that echoes the profound truth that everyone has the ability to make a positive impact in our world. His journey from battling a life-threatening illness to finding emotional healing and purpose is nothing short of inspirational. In our conversation, Bob will share his unique perspective on radical generosity and its transformative power in personal lives and within organizations. He'll delve into the essence of human connection the distinction between generosity and radical generosity, and how simple acts of kindness can create waves of positive change in your life and the life of those around you. So, prepare to be moved and inspired as we uncover the layers of Bob's extraordinary life journey. Let's dive into a conversation that promises to change the way we perceive generosity and its impact on our lives and the world around us. And remember, if Bob's story resonates with you, please like, subscribe, and share your thoughts in the comments. Your engagement helps us continue bringing these life-altering stories to light. Without further ado, let's welcome Bob to Unleash Thyself. Welcome back to Unleash Thyself. I am thrilled to welcome Bob De Pascal to the show. Bob, we can't wait to hear more about your experiences and insights that have led you to where you are today and your Unleashed moment, the moment you knew you were on your own path to becoming the best version of yourself. Bob, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks, Constantine. It is it's awesome to be here, and I am excited to talk about that unleashed moment. And I think some people don't even realize their unleashed moment until it until maybe later on, and that's how it went for me. So it should be a good conversation. Oh, that's awesome! I can't wait to hear that. And I'm with you 100. I mean, I've had a few of those moments in my life, and you were right. In the moment, it may not feel like that because it may come during a tough time, right? It may come during a time where you're not paying attention to the details. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to see where your journey began. 
Wow, my journey. And has boy, it has been a long one over the years. It began, I was actually born in New York, uh, here in the United States. And for those of you listening to me, depending on where you are, but uh, I spend most of my time now in South Florida. That's where really where I grew up. And my journey, like I said, I had a great childhood. I didn't even really know it was a journey. I just thought it was life. I was an only child. I was a spoiled, rotten brat. <laughs> my parents gave me anything I could possibly need to survive. I, we weren't uh, uber wealthy or anything. I wasn't... Uh, I didn't have gold-plated Nintendo controllers, but I had a great life. I Anything that uh, food on the table, played sports with my friends, my parents would take me places and care for me, and we had a couple of vacations, so I just had a good time when I was growing up, and so I thought life was full of loving people, per se, and it, and it is, uh, but my journey made me realize that the world tells us that maybe we're not capable of being as loving as we, we actually are, and so much of my message and things that I talk about uh, revolve around empowering people uh, to use their gifts and skills and resources that they have to be generous to other people. And my journey really started at a young age, learning about how important that is. Yeah, beautiful, Bob. And yeah, let's dive right into that. I know you you talk about radical generosity, and I'm curious to understand your um, definition of that and how that shows up in, in your life. And of course, our audience will love to, to hear it as well, because it's funny how the world works, but we always have, it seems, different definitions for different things, right? So what generosity may look like to me may be very different to other people. So coming to, to not necessarily an agreement, but coming to a place where you're like, oh, I see, you know, the generosity or whatever word you want to throw in. It's more than just what it looks like on the surface, because growing up myself or in my younger years, for me, generosity was anything to do with money and nothing else. Mm-hmm. But since then, I've come to realize it has so many more elements to it than just uh, the financial side of things. Mm -hmm. And radical generosity is the thing that I talk about. And copywriters and internet entrepreneurs and people out there will tell you, don't use too many adjectives and too many adverbs. But I'll tell you, Constantine, I love a good, powerful, descriptive word. And so generosity is extremely important to me. But I have found that radical generosity truly takes another level. It takes it to another step. And Mm -hmm. so You asked about the definition of it. I think most people will understand what generous means. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that you could define it maybe with words, but it's really just something that you experience and feel a moment where one person is supporting another or one cause is supporting another cause. doesn't ultimately have to be a person. And so that's what generosity is. But radical generosity is something a little bit different. And the reason why it's so powerful to me is it by definition, it's not necessarily conflicting terms but i think in the modern world the the word radical has come to be in a lot of cases it's come to be have some negative connotations radical meaning off the wall crazy non-conformative in some cases negative risky and it's just not necessarily the case if you look up the especially the historical definition of radical it simply means something that maybe other people or the masses would not do it doesn't necessarily mean bad It just means that the average person, or in most cases, someone would not decide to act that way. And so that's why I add that term or descriptive term to the word generosity, because I think generosity is something that we can do in abundance in amazing ways that that maybe people aren't thinking about anymore or thinking about how how things were thought of in the past. And so humans today... And you tell me if I'm wrong, Constantine, but life is pretty easy, uh, especially in the modern world. We don't even, I mean, I don't even have to leave my house. We're doing this, we're having this conversation and I'm just standing here uh, in the room in my, in that I call, it's really like a studio in my house and I call it the lab. 
But honestly, I could just sit here all day. I have a refrigerator with food. I don't have any animal. I don't have anything attacking me. I'm not in danger. It's almost too easy. We don't rely on each other as much as we used to. Back in the day, you had to be generous and supportive of each other or you wouldn't survive, right? Absolutely, 100%. You're absolutely right. I mean, of course, there are uh, many people in the world today that don't have the luxuries that, let's say, some of us do, but the majority, uh, not the majority, I say the majority in North America, at least, or the, mm-hmm. a good portion of the people in North America, parts of Europe, Asia, and other places, do have access to a lot more these days. And it makes life in such a way that it feels very divisive, right? Like you said, it feels like you can do everything on your own. And for the most part, you can do many things on your own, but that means that you're losing that connection from human to human. And generosity is one one example of that as well. So yeah, I agree with you. You're losing that connection and it's affecting us. Our mental health is affected by it 100%. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, but I've done a lot of research and it, it's proven, it's shown that the human connection is vitally important for long-term yes. and sustainable health and wellness. And we're just not getting it as much as we used to. And so it's kind of sad to me, but some things that maybe weren't considered radically generous or collaborative or supportive of other people are becoming radically generous because we don't have to do them anymore, right? And so it, it really troubles me, but I have found that the organizations and the people that are committed to building relationships and collaborating and being generous to one another are the ones that are the most successful, the, well, the ones that have the most fulfilled employees, they attract the best customers, uh, the families that are generous externally and internally are the healthiest, the groups of people in the organizations just thrive better because they have that human connection. It's so powerful. So you simply ask the, gener- the, the definition of radical generosity, but as you can see, it's really meaningful to me because once you understand that, you realize that this is a really, really good thing to be radical on, right? There's other things that maybe aren't so good to be radical on. Maybe you want to be careful about what you say or how you act in different situations, or maybe you want to be radical with your forms of entertainment, or you want to be a little bit more conservative. For example, I love doing, I love roller coasters and you know, I love doing things that are fun and exciting, but I don't think I'm going to be base jumping or jumping out of an airplane anytime. Now, some people will tell you that's super safe. So I don't want to, I'm not trying to get in an argument with people who have jumped out of planes and they do it with all the certifications and do it right. But to me, that's something that I would prefer not to be radical on. I'd rather have fun in something that's a little bit of a safer environment. But with generosity, I cannot figure out a situation where, or a person or an example or an organization that shouldn't be radically generous. I just, I I have thought about it in a million different ways. And you mentioned earlier that it's not specifically related to money. So when I say radically, radically generous, I don't mean if you have $10, only $10 in your bank account, you should give nine of it away and only keep a dollar for yourself. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we all have gifts, resources, skills. In some cases it is financial, but in a lot of cases it's not that we should be giving to other people. And I, that's one thing that I, this is the hill that I will die on. Uh, There's not a person in the world that shouldn't, that wouldn't benefit from being radically generous. Yeah. Love that, Bob. And I agree with you. Funny enough is something that, I was saying the last few years came up more and more for me, the idea that the more you give, the more you actually get back. And it's when I say get back, again, it's not just finances. It's the feelings you get back from helping others, from sharing your knowledge, from giving away information or money or 
food or whatever the case may be, clothes even, right? And what you get back from it in, in the feelings you receive, in the gratitude you receive, but also opportunities to show up in your life, right? And some of them could be monetary. Some of them could be people that come into your life or others giving you the same way. So before we move on to digging into this a bit deeper, what would you say the biggest difference between radical generosity and generosity by itself is? So if I'm saying I'm a generous person and you are a radical generous person, what would you say the big differences are? Oh, what an awesome question. So it's simply this. Generosity has become in our society something that you're supposed to do, whether it's for a tax break or because it's for a good image for your organization. I came to this realization the other day. I, my wife and I fly Delta a lot. And if you've ever been in the jetway on a Delta flight, they have advertisements. And every company, every airline has advertisements. Well, Deltas are interesting to me. There's a few about the different things that you get on that you that you get on the flights about Wi-Fi and comfort and food, whatever, totally expected. But there's one of them as an advertisement for giving back through an organization called Habitat for Humanity. Have you heard mm -hmm. of Habitat for Humanity before? Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm very, very familiar with them. I've the, My previous employer was the world's largest donor to the organization. I've been different places all over the world uh, doing build, helping build homes for people. So it's a tremendous organization. So if anyone is looking to do service work or mission work and wants to support uh, people in need, uh, I would definitely recommend they go to Habitat.org. I have, don't have a formal like advertisement relationship with them. I just really believe in their mission. But so does Delta, apparently. Now, this is not a criticism of Delta. I don't know this. I have never met anyone there, any of the leadership. So don't take this the wrong way. But my, in, my thought in my mind is that Delta has this advertisement in their jetways and they do these programs because it's what a massive airline is supposed to do. They're supposed to give back to the community. It's expected, right? You, every organization has their giving back program that kind of checks that box. That's what you're supposed to do as a large organization with a bunch of money. I'm sure they give plenty of money and they probably send teams and people and employees around. They're being extremely generous, right? But they're not being radically generous. Every big organization has their programs that they support, especially financially. So that's generosity. And you cannot measure the quality of your generosity by the volume. So you can't say, well, Delta gave $700 million to Habitat for Humanity, so they're better at generosity than a much smaller company. You measure generosity uh, by how radical it is, in my opinion, like how off the wall, how sacrificial are you truly being with it, with your time and your resources. And so radical generosity is doing something that's not expected or that you're not supposed to. So that this radical generosity might be, I'm driving down the street and I see someone whose their car broke down and there's a thousand cars have driven by this person this morning, looking at them on the side of the road and saying, oh man, that stinks. But you're the one that actually stopped. Now that's radical because you're one of thousands of people who actually stopped to help them. And that's a off the wall, off the top of my head example. But that's the difference between generosity and radical generosity. Radical generosity is doing something that other people would not likely do. I love that example and how you describe that. And yeah. And yes, it comes down to, like many other things in life, right? So the way society and the way we grew up might not necessarily incline us to do, like you said, to, to be generous in certain ways. And they seem non-standard. I still remember a, a story from my earlier childhood. I remember, I was, so I grew up in Romania. And when we were about 14, my parents and us, the kids, we went to Austria from Romania, drove to have a vacation. And our car broke down in Austria on the highway. And we didn't speak any German in Austria. They speak German. 
and we didn't speak any German, and we were on the, the side of the, the highway, and then someone did stop to help us. So this was before cell phones, before a lot of things happened. And had that person not stopped to help and get us to a shop, this was on a Sunday, to get us the help we needed, of course, we had to pay some money for it. What would have happened? In a country you don't know, in a place you don't know, you know, a young family. That, that example you gave me reminds me of the goodness that exists within us. But as the years have gone by and you hear some horror stories and the horror stories are being amplified in the news because that's what yeah. sells, that it makes, it puts people off from helping others because they put themselves in danger based on what society and media would have you believe. I totally understand and agree with what you're saying. I had a sim- My wife and I had a similar experience. We were in a subway in Moscow in Russia. We don't speak Russian. And a million people probably walked by us and could tell that we were lost. And our good Samaritan, per se, came and, and helped us out. She was an example of doing, some, doing something radically generous, whereas everyone else were sprinting by us, rushing off to where they needed to be. And so, yeah, it really tells me that we just, we've lost the natural desire or need to help other people. And the simplest example of this I have, Constantine, is just people walking down the street of your neighborhood. But my wife and I have this thing where I mean, we have this competition, who can get someone to wave back or say hello back to us while we're jogging or exercising in the morning or just walking down the street. We can't even, it's just, it's unexpected for people to even say hello. And this is not me standing on my moral high ground, like I'm some perfect person that has never done anything that's selfish, but it just makes me think, what would it be like if people weren't so nervous to communicate with each other? And it's just on a really simple level. Now, I said I'm not a scientist. Hey, it's Constantine here. And I want to take a brief moment to truly thank you for being a part of this incredible journey of transformation. You are the reason we are creating this content. I see you and I appreciate you. Your support truly means the world to me. I want to ask you for a small favor. I'd love for you to join our mission by hitting like, subscribe, or leaving a thoughtful comment or review. Your engagement helps others discover these insights, and together we can continue to unlock the power of authenticity and personal transformation. And if you want to reach out directly to me, send me an email at constantine at unleashthyself.com. I value any and all feedback. Thank you for being a part of this movement. Now, back to the episode. But I've done quite a bit of research. It's scientific that we were, humans were designed, are the way our brains work and the chemistry the hormones that we have, we were designed to support and help other people. It makes us feel good, not only to be the giver or the receiver of something, whether that's a tangible gift or just help in the subway or help with your car that broke down, uh, but it's also good and it feels good for us to see and experience a generous act that we're not even involved in. And the example I give of this is you're in the car at a stoplight and you see someone helping the, the old person walk across the street, right? And you think to yourself, oh, it's really nice. Like how adorable, like how you know, nice of that person to help someone in need, right? And that's not a big thing. You're not going to go home and have the greatest night of your life because you saw that. But it's going to make you feel good for a little bit in that moment. And then if there was another older person, elderly person that needed help, but no one else to help them, you might put your car in park, get out and help them out because you know that and you experience that. So if you can imagine if we all started doing these little things to help, maybe we would all be a little bit more motivated to do our own acts of generosity. 
And then maybe some of these radical, radically generous things wouldn't be so radically generous anymore, and I'd be out of a job. But that's a whole other story. I love that example as well. So let's go back in time a bit, Bob. So uh, how did you come about radical generosity? Because I would imagine, like you said, you grew up in a, in a good environment. You had some ideas early on. But I would imagine you didn't grow up with this idea of radical generosity. It came to you in later life. Yes. My, my parents taught me, as I said, through examples of just being nice people to others. I always remember my dad when I was growing up. He, so my dad worked in supermarkets most of his professional career. And he wasn't, uh, he certainly didn't own the supermarket, but he worked his way up from just a bag boy, probably way back in Long Island when he was younger to uh, having some greater responsibilities in some of the stores. And we moved down here to South Florida. I remember at one point he was the manager of the front end of one of these stores. So that's a middle management position, I guess. He wasn't in charge of the whole store, but he had some people that worked under him. And I remember walking through, I don't know if it was take your kid to work day or something. And I'm walking through and the store with my dad and he's switch. I mean, he's adjusting every bottle on the shelf so that the label was forward and he's on his hands and knees, picking stuff up, setting end caps to these display. He's doing all this grunt work like this. And I'm like, dad, aren't, aren't you kind of in charge? And he's like, yeah, but I work with these people. Right. And they have other responsibilities. So if there's something that's not quite right, it's my, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make sure it's not me doing all the work. Uh, it's me allowing them to be successful in the other things that they have to do while they're at that job. And it was a lesson to me. And I know that we had a 50th birthday party for my dad many years ago now. And I'll never forget the people just being so complimentary of my dad. And it wasn't, he's the greatest supermarket person, or he's the smartest guy in the world, or he's really, really good at selling jars of peanut butter. and jelly. No, none of that. It was just, he loves other people. He really cares and considers the feelings of other people. And that was what everyone told me. And that really stuck with me. So that really wasn't my unleashed moment, if you will, but I'll never forget that growing up because that was really important. And I got similar messages from my mom as well, who worked also, they actually met in a supermarket, but then she ended up working in a bank. Uh, and so she was providing customer service for a lot of customers. So I always got that message from my parents. Now, love my parents to death, but I wanted to go off to college. And to really answer your question, I'll, I'll tell you a story. When I went off to college, I thought, man, this is really cool. I'm 18 and I'm going to go to college for three reasons. And I said, well, number one reason is because I want to play football in college. I want to play sports. Like that was in the top of my mind. Number two is I get the chance to spend some time with my family who, who is from New York. I was going to go back to school up, up in Long Island where I was technically born. And then the third thought was, yeah, maybe I'll get an education. <laughs> now, I like to think my parents probably thought or hoped that maybe that whole order of those three things was flipped. But nonetheless, it, at least education made it on the list. And so I went up my freshman year. Now we're at school probably a month before the, the regular, I hate to use the term regular, but the students who weren't participating in athletics, fall sports were there. So we're pretty much on campus by ourselves, but I, I was in there for training camp to play ball. And uh, I, I came up lame and I, I thought I had pulled a groin muscle. Now, Constantine, I don't know if you've ever pulled a groin muscle or yeah. you're listening out there and you're working out, don't pull a groin muscle <laughs> because that's one of the most painful, debilitating injuries that you can have. Forget trying to run down on a football field. You can't twist or stand or walk up or do anything with your legs. It's pretty painful if you've ever experienced something like that. I have, yeah. <laughs> and so 
I'm thinking, all right, not a big deal. I'm a freshman trying to prove myself to my teammates and my, my new coaches, but whatever, I'll get over this. And I was doing these rehab exercises. Now, a high school training room and a college training room are a completely different experience, right? Instead of having like a couple of volunteer students and maybe a trainer, we have this massive room with doctors and it's a whole operation. And part of my rehab exercise, I would sit on this three-wheeled stool and I would shimmy myself but pretty much across the whole training room and back. And this, I guess it was supposed to strengthen the muscles in my hips and my groin. I don't know, but it wasn't working. I, I was doing this for like a week straight and it, I was still in pain and I couldn't really move straight. It was strange to be honest with you, but I wasn't that worried. And I don't, this story is a hundred percent true. This is probably the only part that I may be exaggerating, or at least it felt like what I'm about to describe. So you picture a hundred people there on, on a given morning at like five thirty, six o'clock getting ready for practice. There's players, coaches, doctors, trainers, all this commotion going on. And our head trainer was a, t a small guy. I don't know, maybe he was 5'8", to 140 pounds, soaking wet. I mean, he was not a big guy. And in order to get everyone's attention in this crazy environment on a given morning, he would have to stand on top of a box or something and get attention. And he would cup his hands and have to say stuff. And that's why I'm, I, I might be exaggerating, but it just seemed like it got dead silent this one morning. And it was never quiet. And the only thing that could be heard was him yelling across the training room. And they would call me Bobby at the time and said, Bobby, quit being a weakling. You got to get back out on the field. And bro, this is a shot to my ego on this 18-year-old kid who thinks he's invincible, right? Everyone thinks they're invincible at 18, right? Yeah. I thought nothing could take me down. And all of a sudden, now I have this stupid groin injury and the head trainer is calling me out in front of all my coaches and my teammates. I felt like such a loser, to be honest with you. And I went over to him later that day or whatever. We had a kind of a private meeting. And I said, listen, Rick, this thing is not getting any better. And I am not a weakling. Like something's wrong. So he actually sent me to a doctor. Now, I'm 18 years old, so I'm technically an adult, right? And I'm driving around Long Island for like a week going to all these doctor's appointments because this doctor's like, well, we got to run some tests on you. So I had ultrasounds, CAT scans, sonograms, MRIs, you name it, every test in the book. And I was a healthy kid to this point, so I didn't know what any of that stuff entailed. And I would spend hours in these appointments because you got to go in. Then I'd have to fill out all this medical paperwork that I had no idea. What, I didn't know anything about health insurance and doctors and all that, medical history. I would be in there for hours. And then I'd go get the test and they'd prep me and then I'd recover, all this other stuff. So finally, after about a week, uh, maybe even a week and a half, it was a Thursday and my parents had scheduled this trip to come up to New York to see my first ever college game, which would have been the following Saturday. Now, we knew at this point I wasn't playing in this game because I had this injury. Well, mm -hmm. this is supposed to be like my last doctor's appointment, right? They're going to come in. We're going to figure out what's going on. So my parents were flying that morning, and I had the doctor's appointment. So I went to the appointment, and I expected to be sitting there for hours. Again, filling out paperwork, whatever, waiting in the waiting room, whatever. I got in there and I'm like 30 seconds, Bob, and they called me back almost immediately. I get in the, I go in there, I sit down. And then 30 seconds after that, the doctor walks in. This thing is happening really fast. And he sits down in front of me across his desk and he says, Bobby, you have cancer. And I said, what? I don't even think I, actually, I don't even think I said anything. My jaw just hit the desk. And all I could think of, I was like, I'm this invincible 18 year old. I'm thinking in my head, I don't even believe this. And I only, the only thing I remember him saying otherwise was, we're going to hook you up with an oncologist 
you're free to go. And I thought to myself, I don't even know what an oncologist is. Like, what does that even mean? So I walk out of this appointment and it was like divine timing, Constantine. I can't even, I don't even know how this happened, but I walk out of the office, the strange place. And the moment, right as I walked outside, my phone rang and it was my mom. And she goes, hey, we just landed. I didn't expect to catch you. I thought you'd be in the, the appointment. But since I have you, how'd the appointment go? And I was like, uh, ma, so about that appointment. And obviously I had to tell her what the doctor told me. Mm-hmm. And man, I, I cannot describe to you. She, she was screaming, but saying nothing all at the same time. She was just surprised and devastated. And the only thing I could hear, it was like dead silence when I told her what he said. But the only thing I can hear, and I remember, is my dad was on the other, he was in the car with her on the way back to my uncle's house, which is where they were going to be staying. So he heard, so he knew something was wrong too, because she, her reaction was so crazy. And I just remember her saying, him saying, Susan, what's wrong? And my mom's name is Susan. And he knew something was wrong too. So we all met back at my uncle's house. And this is my mom's brother. And I, I hadn't seen, I mean, I had, I'm the only child, mama's boy, had not been a, away from home ever for that long in my life. So it was just nice to see my parents. I gave them a big hug. and But given the news, it was just terrible. We shed some tears. We said a bunch of prayers. And we were just looking at each other like, what's what just happened? Like, you went off to college, and now all of a sudden you're, you have cancer. And so that was on Thursday. The game that I would have been playing in, our, our, my first game would have been on Saturday. But obviously, I wasn't playing at this point. So we were at my uncle's house. And my uncle's best friend comes over his house. The guy that we've never met because we live in Florida and he's there up in New York. And he comes over and introduces himself to my parents. And he reaches in his pocket and pulls out his keys and he hands his keys to my parents. He says, Bob and Susan, I can't imagine what's going on with you right now. Here's my keys. Take my car for as long as you need it to whatever you need to help treat your son right now. And my parents just kind of looked at him. They didn't even know what to say. I don't even think they even reached back for the keys. They were just flabbergasted. And so I thought to myself, wow, that's the most generous thing that anyone's ever done for me and my family. And so that was it. He was there for maybe 15 minutes. He said goodbye and to my uncle and my aunt, and he left, and he was gone. And I, we're all looking around, and my uncle's like, well, that's Tim for you. What a nice guy. Yeah. And so Tim... I didn't think about it at the time with this terminology, but that was radically generous. I don't care how good of a friend you are, who comes over somebody's house and just gives them their car. That was crazy. So we're, we get the car and we had met with an oncologist at this point. And the oncologist said, don't drop your classes. I mean, the, the first thought is, are you going to get treated? Are, am I, am I going to be alive? Like, are you going to go back to Florida? Are you can stay in New York. So we decided to stay in New York. And the oncologist was going to come up with a treatment plan for us. Well, my first ever college class was on Monday. So a couple of days after Tim had come over. And so I went to class. Everything was normal. Went to some more doctor's appointments afterwards. My second ever college class was on Tuesday. And so I came out of this class. And I, I don't want to say it was a normal day because like life was totally crazy at this point. So it wasn't normal. But it was just nothing. I wasn't thinking anything of it. I went to the cafeteria to grab something to eat. Before I was going to head uh, head back, to, I think we had to go to another doctor's appointment. And so I'm watching the news. Now, I don't know the news station. I'm in New York. I'm an 18-year-old kid. I just, this is whatever's on the television. And there was one of those old school, like, tube, a square tube television that 
it was hanging from a bracket between the ceiling and the wall. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And so that's what's on TV. And I'm sitting, I think I was sitting at like a bar seat and I'm eating a breakfast burrito and I'm watching the TV and all of a sudden there's this plane crashes into a building and I'm like, oh, what a horrible accident. That, that's terrible. So I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, are you watching the news? He goes, yeah, yeah, I just saw this plane crash in Manhattan. I'm like, yeah, that's terrible. And we're, we're talking for like less than a minute and all of a sudden, bam, another plane comes and hits the other building right next to where the other one hit. And we didn't know it at the time, but that was the terrorist attacks on Manhattan there in the Twin Towers and 9-11. And my dad's like, well, wait a minute. This is not an accident. You better get back to your uncle's house. So I hop in the car. And I honestly, that breakfast burrito is probably still sitting on the counter there. Like I just, I ran out of there like a crazy person. And I get to the car, I get in. And I had to get on the highway. Now, typically, my uncle's house is about 15 minutes away, a 15-minute drive from where I went to school. And subsequently, we can get into the story later, but I actually have a master's degree in broadcast journalism. So my thought and idea in life was I'm going to be a radio broadcaster. If I'm not going to be playing sports, I'm going to be talking about it. Uh, so I've actually worked in radio. But that day was the only day in my life and the last day in my life that I will ever listen to nine straight hours of AM radio. And the reason why I was listening to the radio is because that 15 minute drive from school to my uncle's took me nine hours with burning towers in the distance. And I'm driving down the highway at basically idling down the highway because people are panicking, thinking the world's coming to an end. So about nine hours goes by and I thank God I got off the highway. I mean, I barely made it. I was in my uncle's neighborhood and I ran out of gas in the car. And if it wasn't, I mean, I can't imagine if I would have, if I would have ran out of gas on the highway, forget about it. But I ran out of gas in the neighborhood. We pushed my car into my uncle's driveway. I get out of the car, not get out of the car, but I come out from behind the car. And that same moment that I, a couple of days before that, with the whole cancer thing, it was like the same moment. We're looking at each other like, what in the world is going on? I, a couple about a, less than a week ago, I was on, I was an invincible 18 year old off at college loving life. And now all of a sudden, we don't know if I'm going to be alive in the near future. And now today, the world might be coming to an end. It was just, I, I cannot imagine, I can't even describe to you what it was like, Constantine. And we looked at each other and we just kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, all right, what do we do? And my aunt was hysterical. And we're like, what's going on? She's like, well, she hadn't heard from my uncle, her husband. And so it's... I don't know, maybe seven o'clock at night or so. Finally, the phone rings and he calls and it's him. And we're like, oh, thank God you're alive. And he's like, yes, he was supposed to fly. He was on business in Denver the night before. He was supposed to fly to New York City. So we thought maybe he was in one of those planes. Well, thank God he wasn't. He was okay. He's like, listen, I got stuck in Denver. My flight never took off because of what's going on. And we're like, oh, this is great news. And he's like, I'll try to hop a flight tomorrow. And we were going to hang up the phone and, and everything's going to be fine. And he goes, no, before you go, I got to let you know, my best friend, Tim, who you all just met a couple of days ago, was in the towers this morning and he died. And it just hit us like, this is the guy that we just met. Like he just, he did the most radically generous thing for us and he doesn't deserve to die. This is terrible. And so it turns out that Tim worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, an investment firm, banking firm that uh, still exists to this day. Uh, but if you, if anyone's out there listening and you want to go the, the history of 9-11 and hear one of the craziest stories is that 
the entire staff of Kenneth Fitzgerald that worked in the towers there was there except for their CEO, Howard Lutton. And there's a YouTube video of a, of a, a report out there. He is never not in the office at that hour of the day, but he was taking his kid to school or something that day. It was a unique circumstance where he wasn't actually there. He was actually one of those people that you've seen some videos of them running down the street when it happened. He was actually caught there on the street and survived. But if you watch the the video of this press conference with this poor guy, I don't know if it was the next day, a couple of days later, but he lost his entire staff and he just felt terrible. I mean, his survivor's guilt probably to this day is just something terrible. And Tim was one of the one of his important employees there in the firm. And Tim was known for being a generous guy. And the firm itself was also known for being generous. In fact, they gave office space for free to my uncle's foundation, which is for cystic fibrosis, a disease that my cousin has. That's a whole other story, but they were super generous. So the whole culture there was about being giving, which at that time I had no idea. Uh, now I look back and I say, well, that's really powerful stuff. And the, the people at the foundation weren't typically in the office that morning, except for Tammy who was also uncharacteristically late that morning because she had to run back to her house or something silly. I don't remember the whole story, but she was caught in the subway below the tower and uh, has survived. But the stories that she can tell about what happened that day uh, are just amazing. And so I tell you this story, A, because you asked, but B, also because uh, that the lessons there are amazing. And so you think about it, uh, for some reason, now Tammy's the nicest person in the world, but for some reason she was spared. Uh, but unfortunately, Tim, who is known for being radically generous and did the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for my family, unfortunately, he was not spared. And you could ask questions, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? I do know that Tim was known for saying, you never know when the last chance you'll have to be generous to someone will be. And ironically, my family was the family that was involved in his last chance to be generous to people. Wow. Wow, Bob. What a powerful story. And so many lessons in that. And I can imagine the impact that had on your life moving forward, right? You could say my life has changed because of that moment. And I don't know if change is the right word because I, I, I wanted to be clear. I, I Life was good. I was totally cool with how life was going before that. So I would say my life is absolutely enriched since yes. then. But not a day goes by where I don't think about that time. And once again, I, I will double down on this. I am not an exaggerator. This story is 100% real. And what's even more real, though, is that I do think about this every day. This is not something that I am that I just believe or comes up once in a while or people ask me. I literally think about that time in my life every day because it was so meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine, right? I still remember when 9-11 happened, I was still, was what, my second year in Canada and North America after moving from Eastern Europe. And I was in finishing high school and we were in class when it all happened, right? And it was so surreal. I can't even imagine being right there and having all that happen. But another thing that came up to me as you were telling this story right towards the end, that it sounds like you had amazing role models in your life through your parents. But then this uh, Tim, this guy that you never really knew or no one did outside of your uncle, showed you really what it means to be generous. And that perhaps opened up the door for you to realize the importance of you yourself being a role model. Because I would imagine anyone that's listening and has children or plans on having children, 
imagine the life you can give your children by just being that much better of a human being, by being more generous, more grateful, improving yourself on a daily basis, because now you're living as an example, right? You don't have to do more. It's actually, in fact, even maybe you can argue doing less, but it's doing things differently and approaching them from a different angle. And I would imagine you seeing it at 18 puts you on a path that otherwise you could have never imagined or expected. Yeah, could not have imagined. And I really like you talk about doing less. My suggestion for people, I don't know if we want to go off on this tangent, but my suggestion for people when they ask me about how do I be more generous or what do I do or how do I make my company more generous? Because I do a lot of work speaking with organizations trying to help them build a generous culture. And it's it's very rarely is it do they need to do more. I gave you the Delta example. Delta's already giving time and money to Habitat for Humanity and probably many other charitable organizations. The answer is not usually, I got to add another thing to my plate. It's A, you got to change the mindset and the culture, and B, you probably just need to rearrange the time and, and how you're spending it. It's There's only so many hours in the day. So the, the answer is not cram in another event. The answer is, okay, now how do I think more intentionally about how to use what I have? And that's a great place to start. Yeah, I'm glad you went there because, yes, that's been my realization as well. It doesn't have to do just with generosity, but life in general, right? Because it's all mm -hmm. about shifting some of those perspectives and having the right mentors or the right role models in your life to, to show you what you're not seeing or what you haven't been able to see yet because you haven't been exposed to it. So when you're working with these organizations, right, and you're helping them change the culture or update the culture or implement the culture of more generosity. What are some of the biggest aha moments that you see these organizations have? Like, they're like, oh yeah, we didn't think about this. So how come we haven't done this yet? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked this question because the realizations, they come like when you least expect it. So the reason I got into this work is because I spent about 12 years working for a large financial organization and I'm still in the financial industry. I just, I have my own firm right now. We focus on generosity and helping families manage their wealth for impact. But I realized in my previous role, after working with thousands of families, many of them entrepreneurial, I just, I don't know if it was my intentions or just happened this way. I, I have an entrepreneurial spirit. and I love people who think that way, that want to make the world a better place through products and services. And so I guess I gravitated towards working with families who thought this way and, and matriarchs and patriarchs who were trying to build something great with what they have. And I realized the ones that had the most generous culture were the ones who were the most successful and fulfilled and successful mm -hmm. by their own definition, not whatever the world tells them. Like they had well-defined what they were trying to do. And so when you ask the question, what were some aha moments? The first thing I want to bring up is my aha moment, because I realized when I started being asked by some of these families to provide some services that we just couldn't in the old model, that's when we came to the aha moment that we had to start our own firm. And it was sad leaving my previous employer because I love working there, but we wanted to do this. And so that's when I had this aha moment. These people, it is not something that, don't get me wrong, they're in, they were intentional about building their business like this, but it was just natural to them to be giving and to be supportive and collaborative with their employees. And I would work on them with stuff that was more than just financial. Like we would talk about, okay, how do I get our sales staff to be more productive? And most, just to give you an example, most sales-oriented organizations will say, well, you need more incentives. You got to send the people who make the most money for your firm on a big trip across the world and you got to give them bonuses and you got to have a the quarterly sales contest between the salespeople. And I realized that in some cases, there's a select few people that are super motivated by some of those things, especially if it's money. 
if it's just, hey, you get a, you get a $500 bonus if you sell more of these than the other person does. But I realized those are the worst uncollaborative environments. They didn't attract the best talent. They certainly didn't attract the most loyal customers. So I came to this aha moment. I was like, it's just natural for these people to want to collaborate and support each other. And I thought back to my dad crawling along the picture, a manager crawling along the floor in a supermarket, cleaning things up and organizing right. stuff. And I was like, it's kind of a metaphor for these people that I'm working with now. They are, they'll be willing to do just the littlest things to help their employees and other in business partners be successful. So they just had this natural desire to help other people be successful, right? And if they knew that if they were, if they help their CEO and then their middle manager and their sales staff and even the janitor be successful at their job, they knew that their company would be a place that they, that their company would be a place that would feel collaborative. People would want to be involved in it. And ultimately that would make them successful. And I interviewed some of them and I did some of my research and that's when I figured this out. So that was my aha moment was yeah, like, amazing. okay, so it's not necessarily about how you motivate your people the most for their own success. It's how you allow people to be, to have agency and, and be empowered over helping your organization be successful because everyone wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. That's another natural, talk about scientific studies. You can look into this too. It's great to have your own success, but man, when you're, when you have a say and you're part of the success of your team, that is super powerful. So that was my aha moment. And then to answer your real question, some of the aha moments of the people that we work with, some of these firms realize that they don't have to just check boxes and employees are intelligent. You, you mentioned earlier about about ki- about people realizing that they want to have kids or like they want to their, their family's growing. Well, I will tell you this: I don't have any kids in myself. I have some medical issues. One of them being infertility as a result of my cancer treatments and my cancer itself. That's a whole other story. So we don't actually have any biological children, but we work a lot with we do a lot of mentoring of high school and college students. And my wife's a kindergarten teacher, so I've learned this: kids are smart. They know what's going on. And it's not just what you say, it's the reason why you make decisions. Like they have the ability to deduct why you've done stuff and employees are exactly the same. So one of the greatest realizations that entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders in business that I've worked with have realized is that their employees know the reason why programs and systems exist in the business. So I hate to keep banging on Delta because I'm a great customer of theirs. My SkyMiles account shows it. Like, <laughs> I like Delta, so don't take this the wrong way. Anyone who's never flown Delta or Delta, if there's anyone listening who works for Delta, I'm just using them as an example. But if the reason why Delta is supporting Habitat for Humanity is just because they are just checking that philanthropic box that every large corporation is supposed to, I guarantee you the employees know that. On the flip side, if the people at Delta love working for Habitat for Humanity and they feel like they're changing the world and they're helping people who are in need and it feels good, I guarantee you the employees also know that. So the one thing that sticks out the most more than anything is that the people that are involved in your organization, whether it's the employees or the customers, so everything I just said about the employees for Delta also applies to the customers, including myself, people know why you make decisions and why programs exist. And that is a powerful thing for an organization that's trying to grow. 
I love those examples and those aha moments. And I love that you shared yours as well, mm-hmm. because it's a great example of the journey that we are all on, right? Like you're doing what you love to do, helping others, but in the process, you learn so much yourself. And that's something that I've come to realize as well. And I like to reemphasize that because oftentimes, at least I found myself believing that I'll do something, there's no, no more opportunity to learn, but that you'll get those aha moments in the craziest times. Because you don't expect anything, they're like, oh yeah, you know what? That was a beautiful mm-hmm. lesson. That was, that was something I that made me grow a bit more as a human being. So I loved both of those examples there from your personal life and the corporate life. And um, it brings me to another question. It got me thinking about another question, right? Again, most people that are listening to this, I would imagine, feel like they are generous in their life in some way or another, right? Maybe generous with their time, maybe mm-hmm. with some of their food, maybe with doing a, an act of kindness or whatever the case might be. But if let's say someone wants to do more, what would you say are some easy ways to start being more radically generous, like you mentioned? Maybe let's see if we can do, we can talk about three top things that come to your mind when it comes to things that someone can do to put themselves on that path to see not only the beautiful benefits of it to the others, but to themselves as well. To like you said earlier, like to feel more joy, mm-hmm. to improve your day just because you've done something or you've witnessed something. Yeah. So I would say this. I'm an entrepreneurial person, like I mentioned, I like to achieve great things. For, for most people that, that I speak with and we have these conversations and organizations, there's some kind of drive there, right? They have this desire to be incredibly generous. Once they realize that generosity is cool, they love it. It's like, I want to be the most generous person in the world. And I guess let's slow down a minute. We're all not going to be Bill Gates or whoever and have a massive foundation with hundreds of millions of dollars giving away. That's not, everyone's not going to fit in that mold. But there's nothing wrong with striving for big goals. So when you talk about maybe three examples. So I'd say the first thing you want to think about, though, is you got to start small. Like there's no massive organization or company or movement or impact project or whatever starts. There's no overnight successes, especially in the generosity space. So the first thing you want to do, in my opinion, is you need to have, you got to build a mindset. So before you're comfortable giving away your car, if you're Tim O'Brien of Kenner Fitzgerald in 2001, you got to give away something maybe a little bit less with a little bit less leverage. <laughs> Instead of giving away your car, maybe you just give someone some time. Maybe you develop a habit of volunteering your time for people. Or in an even smaller level, how about my wife and I just walking down the street saying hi to people, like just giving them even five seconds of our time. In fact, I'll give you another story real fast, Constantine. We were running, this is probably six months ago, and we're very intentional about this now. Like, I'm a people person, so I kind of like interacting with people anyway. So maybe there's some selfish motivation. But I also think it's really good to connect with people and just greet them. It's a good feeling. I bet you they go back throughout their day. It was nice that someone actually said hello to me this morning. Well, we were running by this guy, and it was dark out because we were working out pretty early in the morning, and I didn't see him. And he apparently said something to me. And because we were talking or we were running and I couldn't hear, I didn't even hear him. And we walked by a guy, and he made this remark Like, oh, like you're not even going to say anything. And I felt terrible. Now, he was kind of being a little jerky maybe for saying it like that. But it makes total sense because we walked right by the guy and I said nothing. And I just want to tell you that story, A, because it shows that like we can all make this mistake. But it made me realize that's a really meaningful thing for that. Like just a simple hello. So all I needed to do was acknowledge the guy and say, hey, good morning. We ended up having a conversation now after this. And I was blown away by this guy, like the way he was describing, he was basically having the same conversation that we're having now, but he was just his experience with this and how important he thinks it is to have human connection as well. The first thing 
the simplest thing is just be nice to people, whether you're in the supermarket or you're walking down the street or it's your coworker and it's the morning, greet people. Hey, good morning. The person next to you in the cubicle. So powerful. So that's number one. Take us just a small step, right? Now, the next thing I suggest, and this one is playing on the human desire to collaborate. And I talk about this with the organizations a lot. So the next step is not give more or say hi to more people which is great. Don't get me wrong. If you gave $5 and that was your entryway, give 10 the next time if you can. Tremendous. Or if you said hi to five people one morning, say hi to 10. Not saying not to do that. But the next step is actually to collaborate with someone else. And my story for this is, let's see, man, it's almost a year ago now. A really good friend of my wife and I got gravely ill. The person, just a poor person, like everything seemed like it was piling on, going on at the same time. One after another, there were these these health issues. And so we wanted to help the family because they were in the hospital and the spouse was driving back and forth and the kids were at home and trying to go to school. They didn't have food. So we brought food over one day for the kids because they were the, the, the parents were at the hospital. And I thought to myself, man, this is just one night. This has been going on for three, four weeks, and it'll probably be going on for another couple of months. So I said, how else are we going to be able to support these people? I can't cook a meal every night and go over. That's just not possible. So what we did was, is we had asked someone in the community at the church, okay, can we get some support? And this is no credit to us at all. Someone had already started putting together a list of people that could bring meals over. It was like, we would call, it was like a meal train, we would call it. And so I'm not taking any credit for it, but now I will absolutely use this option in the future when we're trying to support people in need. But we ended up, or we, they, not, sorry, not we, they ended up basically getting these people fed for three or four months. And they all collaborated. There was a, an, I think it was an online document and they would, you just sign up for a day and we would communicate and say, okay, they had Italian or they had Asian, like we don't want to bring them pizza every night. And we collaborated to support these people. And that was such a powerful thing because now it was not only just us helping them. It was us getting other people involved and it became like a fun, enjoyable thing to do. Now, we didn't want to have to do it because this poor person was in the hospital, but at the same time, it created this sense of community around supporting the person in need. And I guarantee you, someone in that community of 20, 30 families or whatever is going to be in need again themselves and that same community will probably get together to support them. So you said, give me some examples of things. So just to take a quick step back, number one was just be kind and nice to people, greet them, do simple things for people and make it a habit, right? Don't just do it once, make it, whatever the rules are, take days to turn something into habit or you have to do it seven to 12 times. There's a million books and resources out there that tell you what the metrics are to build a habit. Whatever it is for you, build the habit. Then number two is invite other people into that habit or come up with a project that you can do with others and create a sense of community around it. And then finally, number three is to become a leader in that space. Now that you've done this before, is now you want to be you, you want to be a known as being a leader, but you also want to have the confidence that not only can you do it yourself, that you can also teach others to do it. And I don't know anything else in life that you learn or a skill or a project. Once you can teach it, then you really know it. And so in that scenario or in that kind of progression, if you will, I think is really really powerful for people. So I hope that answers your question. And if you're out there listening, just want to get started, start really, really, really simple. And I guarantee you'll make some progress. Wow. I love that, Bob. And I, I love the way you broke down the three steps. And it's examples that we can all do in our life, right? The first one is, I would say, like you said, it's just the easiest one because there are things we can do right now. It doesn't require money. 
Mm-hmm. It's just changing a small habit in your life that you're already doing. You you have to go grocery shopping most likely, right? You likely have to work. You likely have to go for a walk or a run. So you can implement those ideas there. And the second example you gave with the families, what I really also love about that, and this is something I keep going back to, imagine those kids that ended up being helped. What example is such for them? What type of lessons they're learning growing mm-hmm. up? That's powerful. And that's, glad you brought that up. Right. And then that's what I always go to is like you do something nice, like in the case, right? But what we don't often think about is all the impact it has beyond just the, the, the gesture. And it's good to, I would imagine in my case as well, it's good. like you gave this example earlier, like you may witness something and that makes you feel better, right? And it makes you feel good and it might give you an incentive to do it yourself later. And that's a benefit for each and one of us that could make us reconsider and say, you know what, we can do more because the impact that we're going to have, the immediate impact is beneficial, but the ripple effect, we don't even know how many souls it touches. Uh, but I know we're getting close to the hour here. So I want to make sure that we give you a chance to talk about your own podcast, right? Speaking of impact. And I know you have a book in the background there. So maybe you tell us about a bit about that and where people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I sat down to write a book, transitioning from a large financial firm into my own. I said, I have a lot of thoughts and ideas on things that personally I can help people with their finances. And my mindset, Constantine, was two things. One is I have all this information to share. I have 12 plus years of experience. If you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's books and resources, one of them outliers specifically about having to be a, spend 10,000 hours doing something to be an expert, I, by definition, I tell you I'm an expert three times over in, in financial matters. But it was a very humbling experience because I realized it's really not about what you want. I got some really good advice from someone who said, it's about what you want to know. So in other words, curiosity is really important. And so I bring that up because uh, this writing a book is quite an experience. And the book is about technology, social media, and ads and how they affect our money decisions. So it's still absolutely about those financial topics and each chapter breaks down a, a different popular financial topic like insurance or retirement or investing. Uh, there's a chapter on cryptocurrency. So if you're interested in any of those things and how technology affects you and how you can use technology as a positive resource, absolutely the book for you. But I bring up the story about writing it because it was a humbling experience that it really wasn't what I knew in the past. The reason why I believe it's a great text and a great book is because I use curiosity to fuel the content. I had to learn. I had to go do research. I had I interviewed 50 plus people. I did a lot of work to be able to find that information. And the people, Constantine, that contributed to the book were so generous with their time and resources. And it really taught me a lesson about generosity, right? That we all have intellectual property and thoughts and ideas that can be helpful to others. And so I think that they thought they were helping me specifically they said, oh, Bob, you know, it's your, you've never written a book before. This will be really helpful. I would love to help you. And I realized they're not just helping me. They're helping the whole world, really, because anyone can buy the book. You can find it on Amazon. So um, what a cool experience. If those topics interest you, but I think you'd be surprised. I ended up being extremely surprised about the lessons. I thought it was going to be a lot about technical stuff about finance, but it ended up really having a pretty, I don't want to be a spoiler, but it had a pretty strong message of the importance of the human connection. So that's the book. Check it out. My website's bobdeepitscrawley.com. You can find more information about all that stuff. So really appreciate you having me on the show here, Constantine. I mean, there's a lot to talk about in this space. And if you have an, or- an organization that you feel wants to build a more collaborative, generous culture, then, then I'm your guy. 
Awesome. We'll make sure to put it in the show notes. And before I let you go as well, like I know you have a podcast, right? Speaking of impact, what can mm, people yeah. find on your show? Yes. Also, BobDeepaScrawley.com. You can find all my social links too. I'm at BDPA on there, but the, the podcast is there. We release, as we record this, I think it's a episode one, maybe 65 this week. So we've been at it for over three years. It's been a it's been a blast. Uh, we talk a lot about these type of topics and how to make a positive impact with the resources we have in the world. And anyone that wants to hear stories from entrepreneurial type of people using their platform to make good in the world, it, uh, it's the show for you. So thank, thanks for giving me a chance to plug that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing stuff, Bob. So before I let you go, is there anything else top of mind for you that we haven't covered? And like you said, we have lots to discuss in this space. But if there's one last message you want to leave the audience with, this will be yes. a time. Yes, there is. So I, I love quotes. I got a million quotes. But the one that sticks out to me related to what we're talking about today is one that I heard by the lead singer of a band I heard at a concert when I was in high school. And I didn't realize the meaning. I just thought it was a catchy quote back then. Now, with all the work that I do about generosity and giving, it's one of the it leads my day. Most days I think about this quote because it's so powerful. And so uh, if you're looking to get into the generosity space and you kind of feel overwhelmed, maybe some imposter syndrome, like how am I really going to make a difference in the world? This quote will drive you every day. It's you may not change the world, but you may change the world for one person. And so we all have an ability to do that. So best of luck. Get out there. Be, ge be radically generous and be sure to catch another episode with Constantine. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Bob, I really appreciate you and all the work you do and your time with us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on this exploration of personal transformation. Your presence and engagement are at the heart of what we do, and I sincerely appreciate you, your time and thirst for knowledge, inspiration, and empowerment. Please consider showing your support by hitting like, subscribe, leaving a comment, or writing a review. Your engagement not only fuels our mission, but also helps others discover these insights. For more daily guidance on personal transformation across the mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical realms, be sure to visit our website at unleashthyself.com. You can also find us on Instagram at unleashthyselftoday, TikTok and YouTube at unleashthyself, and there we post daily content designed to inspire and empower you on your journey. If you have any specific thoughts, questions, or feedback, I truly value your input. Or if you'd like to have a conversation with me, or work with me, please feel free to email me directly at constantine at unleashthyself.com. I would love to hear from you. Together, we're building a community united in authenticity and purpose. Once again, thank you for being a part of this movement. Until next time, continue to embrace your true self and live a life on purpose with purpose. See you in the next episode.